This is the podcast Surgery IC Rounds. My name is Jeff Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery and director of the Burn Unit at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Today, the topic that I want to talk about uh, is heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. I don't know about um, you or your practice, um, but I do know that in our intensive care units that... Given the types of patients we take care of, um, all of our patients have some sort of deep venous thrombosis prophylaxis. And in our typical unit, we will use the low molecular weight heparins. Um, and you may be using the low molecular weight heparins or our standard unfractionated heparins in your unit. Uh, but whenever you're using heparin, uh, the one thing that we're always looking at is the, thrombo- the possible development of thrombocytopenia or the drop in the platelet count. When the platelet count drops, one of the things we're always looking for is does this patient have heparin-induced thrombocytopenia? And we'll often draw labs, we'll stop the heparin or, or go to a different modality of deep venous thrombosis prophylaxis. But I find that many people who are we're talking about this with either um, the, the residents or medical staff or nursing don't really have a, a fine understanding of what this problem is. Recently, we had a patient who had a, a horrible case of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, and um, it really uh, illustrated a, a lot of some of the difficulties in managing these patients. So at least for this podcast, I want to focus on what is heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, how do we diagnose it, what's its pathophysiology, and what are some of our ways of treating it. And then in a subsequent podcast, I think I'm going to focus a little bit on how we actually approach and, and make the diagnosis of uh, deep venous thrombosis and pulmonary emboli uh, in uh, 2007. Heparin-induced thrombocytopenia occurs due to the formation of antibodies directed against heparin bonded uh, to a platelet factor 4. So this is an antibody-mediated phenomenon. The body is creating antibodies to this heparin-bonded complex. Workington and colleagues in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1995 estimated that um, the frequency of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia is about 1-5% to when unfractionated heparin is used, but it's less than 1% when using the low molecular weight heparins. As a physician or a nurse caring for a patient in the ICU, when should you suspect heparin-induced thrombocytopenia? And typically when you see a sudden drop in the platelet count with either a least than a 50% drop in the platelet count from baseline or a platelet count falling to less than 100,000 in a patient receiving any form of heparin. So let's make an example. If you have somebody whose baseline platelet count is 250,000 and it drops to about 125,000, that 125,000 is still a normal platelet count. It's not really going to get the asterisk next to the number. This is the phenomena that I call stargazing. Uh, a lot of times people will look at the laboratory values and if there's not a star next to it, you know, it must be okay. Well, a platelet count of 125,000 is not problematic unless the baseline was 250,000. It's a 50% drop. And that's why I keep telling people that you want to watch the trends, the physiological trends in heart rate and the, and the trends in the laboratory value. Uh, using another example, a heart rate of, say, 65 or 70 is normal in some individuals, but over a course of 8 or 10 hours, that heart rate trends upward to, say, 90 or 95. Both of those are normal heart rates by definition, but that represents a significant increase in heart rate. So you need to start drilling down for a physiological cause. In this situation, a platelet count of 250 to 125,000 are both considered 
normal platelet counts, but there's something that's dropping that platelet count. In this case, you need to suspect a heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. You also need to consider heparin-induced thrombocytopenia when any when a patient has a platelet count of less than 100,000, again, in anybody receiving uh, any type of um, heparin. You might be saying, well, a lot of drugs can cause thrombocytopenia, and you'd be absolutely correct. There's a huge list of these, and, and you're talking to like uh, uh, your uh, uh, glycoprotein 2B and 3A agents, uh, different antibiotics like amphotericin, rifampin, bactrim, vancomycin, all very commonly used in intensive care settings. Those can drop your platelet count. Uh, different uh, drugs such as amiodarone, cathepril, DIG. Uh, procanamide, drugs that aren't really used very much anymore, but still uh, amiodarone is used uh, quite a bit. Uh, H2 blockers, uh, again, these aren't used too, too commonly, like cimetidine or ininidine. Um, heparin, obviously, uh, a, a big agent dropping your platelet count, hydrochlorothiazide, different NSAIDs, as well as valproic acid. So you want to look at that med list, and if you don't know uh, what all drugs can drop your platelet count, certainly discuss this with your PharmD uh, who's assigned to your unit. Just ask them and say, can you look at this med list and, and identify drugs that could potentially be responsible for dropping my platelet count? Now, when do you see that drop in platelet count? You can say, well, this patient's been on heparin for four days and, and they've been tolerating it just fine. Well, that's about when you typically see it. Heparin-induced thrombocytopenia usually occurs four days after starting heparin, but may occur rather rapidly in somebody who's been kind of primed or pre-exposed. And what that means is somebody has been exposed to heparin uh, previously, um, recently, within about three months, uh, the drop in the platelet count may be more precipitous. An often overlooked feature of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia is recurrent thrombosis in a patient receiving heparin despite a normal platelet count. Let's put that in a clinical scenario. If somebody continues to be making thrombus, uh, clotting things off, either they vascular grafts or free flaps or whatever, uh, we always, surgeons are always looking for something to blame other than our own technical inefficiencies. But if a patient's receiving heparin, uh, that may be the uh, manifestation of the heparin-induced thrombocytopenia is the fact that they may not be truly thrombocytopenic, but, but they may be having recurrent thrombosis. And Hunch-Wanderall, excuse me, Hunch-Wanderall, colleagues described this in Lancet in 1994. Now, I've already given you a long laundry list of medications that can induce heparin, uh, induce thrombocytopenia, excuse me, that can induce thrombocytopenia, but there are other non-drug-related things that can cause thrombocytopenia that are relatively common in our intensive care units. The fact that a patient's been on cardiopulmonary bypass, certain types of infections, sepsis shock, septic shock, mechanical ventilation has been shown to drop your platelet counts. The presence of pulmonary artery catheters, DIC, dilutional coagulopathy. So somebody's a, a trauma patient or a patient who uh, has required a lot of fluids, we can actually dilute the platelet count with a, um, vigorous administration of IV fluids. So you're going through this list and thinking, well, well, golly, that's about half the patients in our intensive care unit. It seems awfully kind of a cop-out to always blame this on heparin. And that may, may very well be the case, and that's where the diagnosis gets difficult, is that you've got to consider all of those things that can drop your platelet count, pharmacological and non-pharmacological. There are two laboratory tests that help diagnose heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, and these have their own challenges. One test is it's a platelet aggregation assay, and, and the way this is performed is you take plasma from the patient, 
you take donor platelets and you put heparin and you combine all these together. And if when you add the heparin it induces a platelet aggregation, the test is considered positive. I have never done this test. I have never seen this test performed personally. Uh, but the literature would say that this is a very technically demanding test. But if it's performed carefully, it's reasonably sensitive and specific. There is a, a, a rub in this test is that if it's done too early, it can be uh, falsely negative. And therefore, if it's repeated in 24 hours, it can turn positive as the antibody titers increase. The second type of uh, test to evaluate for heparin-induced thrombocytopenia is what's called an enzyme-linked uh, immunosorbent assay. This is an ELISA test. And anybody who's ever worked in a lab, in a clinical lab or research lab, uh, is familiar with these kind of tests. They're very slick. They're very. They have a lot of reproducibility to them. Um, and this enzyme-linked test is uh, testing for the presumed pathogenic antiplatelet factor for antibodies. The problem with this test is it actually may be too sensitive. By being too sensitive, what does that mean? That means that you could have false positives, that you can identify somebody who said, you can say, I think this patient has hit heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, but the reality is that they don't. And the patients that uh, this will be overly positive with is uh, cardiac surgical patients. About 25 to 50% of these patients will be positive. And the other problem is, is that it uh, can be negative in up to 20% of patients who have uh, hit Therefore, with these problems with the ELISA test having problems with both sensitivity and specificity, it's a little bit difficult to apply this clinically. And therefore, you need to insert your clinical judgment and, and uh, your experience. When you, when you have a patient who you've diagnosed with uh, uh, HIT, you have to um, stop all the heparins. Low molecular weight heparins cross-react with the HIT antibodies, and therefore these agents are all contraindicated. Well, I've stopped my heparin or I've stopped my low molecular weight heparin. Let me start the patient on some Coumadin or warfarin therapy. Wrong. Do not do that. The institution of uh, warfarin therapy has been associated with increased risk of thrombosis. And this is uh, described by Warkington in the uh, Annual Review of Medicine in 1999. When you need to treat people who have HIT, there are three new antithrombotic agents that are available. The first one of these is a drug called agatroban. It's a synthetic thrombin inhibitor. has a very short half-life. Conveniently, that half-life is about 40 to 50 minutes. A little bit less than heparin, but for sake of convenience, you know, heparin has a half-life of about an hour. Uh, Agatroban has a half-life of about an hour. The dosing of this drug is reasonably straightforward at 2 mics per kilogram per minute. And you want to adjust the infusion to keep your PTT between 1.5 to 3 times of normal. One advantage of agatroban is that it's, renally, it's not renally excreted. And therefore, in a patient who is in renal failure or renal, no renal insufficiency, you don't need to make any dosing adjustments to this. Um, however, patients who do have liver disease, you do need to downward adjust the dose uh, of agatroban. The metabolism of agatroban is also decreased in patients who have multi-organ failure, and therefore, you need to adjust the dosage of agatroban down uh, in patients who have um, uh, multi-organ failure as well. Key thing with the gatraban is that there is no agent to reverse the anticoagulation of the gatraban. Now you know that in heparin you can reverse the anticoagulation of the protamine, and in gatraban, uh, if you um, have the patient on a robust dose or excessively anticoagulated, or you get bleeding complications, you have to just ride the drug out. 
uh, or uh, treat with uh, replacement factors. Another um, uh, agent to be used to, uh, as an anticoagulant to uh, treat heparin-induced thrombocytopenia that is not a heparin heparinoid is uh, liparudin. Liparudin is a direct inhibitor of thrombin. It's uh, also monitored by using the PTT. The half-life of liparudin is uh, short, but it can accumulate in patients who have renal insufficiency. And it accumulates in a big way, with uh, the half-life increasing to more than 50 to 100 hours. So if somebody is uh, with renal insufficiency, you do not want to go anywhere near this drug, because if you get the patient on a dose that is too robust, um, that's a nice way of saying overdose, and you've got bleeding problems, you're living with that mistake for days and days and days. And uh, much like agatroban, there's no agent that can reverse the anticoagulation of liparudin. If you have a patient with even slight renal insufficiency, you've got to adjust the doses of liparudin to avoid over-anticoagulation. So you have to ask yourself if you're if you have to use one of these antithrombotic uh, agents and somebody has renal insufficiency or renal failure, liparudin is not the drug you need to be using. Up to about 80% of patients who receive long-term liparudin therapy will develop antibodies to the drug, and that will clearly reduce the metabolism of a herudin, uh, and therefore that will increase the therapeutic effect of liparudin. Another drug is called Fondaparinu. I'm going to say that again, Fondaparinu. It's an anti-10A inhibitor. It does not cross-react with uh, HIT antibodies, and it could be useful, or it is useful, in the prophylaxis uh, against HIT. The long life of uh, this drug um, and its renal clearance make it unsuitable for acute therapy. So this isn't something we're going to see uh, in the intensive care units. You want to stay away initially from warfarin-only therapy as it is associated with limb gangrene and should not be started as a sole antithrombotic agent in HIT. And, and why anybody would consider doing this is, is somewhat beyond me. We know that when we treat DVTs and pulmonary emboli that we have to anticoagulate a patient first before we consider uh, the use, uh, the initiation of warfarin therapy due to uh, how protein C and protein S are metabolized with uh, warfarin. Uh, you actually get an initial, when you start warfarin therapy, you actually can create a paradoxical hypercoagulable state. So that's why patients always have to be anticoagulated as you initiate that drug therapy. Patients with HIT but without evidence of thrombosis are at high risk for thrombosis. Now, the patient that we took care of this past week developed HIT and developed clot basically everywhere. Uh, clinically, the patient had a, a significant pulmonary embolus, had a thrombosis uh, in the femoral vein, uh, and occlusive thrombosis uh, in the iliac vein, thrombosis in jugular and subclavian veins, clot essentially everywhere. And in a patient like that, you know you're in deep water clinically on how you're going to take care of that patient. Workington and colleagues in New England Journal of Medicine 1995, though, demonstrated that patients who have HIT and have no evidence of thrombosis, uh, in either pulmonary emboli or DVT, they have HIT but no evidence of uh, thrombosis are still at high risk for thrombosis. And in their study, they felt that 53% um, of those patients uh, were at high risk for thrombosis and should be considered for antithrombotic therapy, i.e. anticoagulation of these agents we just discussed. Therefore, if you have a patient who is identified as HIT positive, those patients need to be carefully screened for thrombosis, including obtaining lower extremity Dopplers. So if you have a patient and you identify them as HIT, you need to be very 
paranoid that they either have a DVT somewhere or are going to develop a DVT somewhere. Uh, and therefore, consideration for uh, duplexes immediately in the lower extremities or even the upper extremities when there's any kind of swelling, difficulty passing wires or whatever, and perhaps even doing it in a surveillance-type mode. It's not known whether prophylactic doses are necessary or if therapeutic doses of these mentioned anticoagulants are needed for thrombosis prevention in a patient with HIT but no thrombosis. So we're saying that even though we have a patient um, who we've diagnosed with HIT, we do duplexes of the upper and lower extremities, we don't find any clots, there is discussion and consideration about whether we need to put these patients on um, uh, these um, antithrombotic agents uh, to uh, prevent the development of thrombosis and actually treat them like somebody who has a DVT. And then if you do that treatment, how long do you do it? Do you do it for two months, three months, six months? Uh, these questions remain unanswered. Some authors have recommended uh, to give a prophylactic dose of uh, some of these antithrombotic agents until the platelet count has returned to normal, and that's Hirsch and colleagues in chest in 2001. In a post-surgical patient, one may need to uh, prophylax the patient with some of these antithrombotic agents for up to six weeks. So that's a very brief review on HIT, and I just want to recapsulate that. How, when do we suspect somebody uh, should have, when, do we, when should we suspect somebody has heparin-induced thrombocytopenia or HIT? If they're, if they're on a heparin uh, or low molecular weight heparin and their platelet count drops below 100,000, they need to be evaluated for HIT. If their baseline platelet count decreases by 50, if their platelet count drops below 50% of their baseline, they need to be evaluated for HIT. There are two tests to evaluate for HIT. If your patient is ruled in or positive for HIT, there are several agents that we've already discussed about, about medications that you can use to uh, anticoagulate the patient and not aggravate the HIT. Warfarin therapy by itself will result in limb gangrene. Of the three uh, agents used for the treatment of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, probably the two that are um, most um, applicable uh, in the intensive care unit are um, argatraban or liparudin. Argatraban is probably the safest due to its short half-life and the fact that uh, it is safe to use in patients who have renal, insuffi renal insufficiency. Um, the doses of agatraban have to be adjusted if there's evidence of multi-organ failure or liver insufficiency. Uh, and keep in mind that with both agatraban and liparudin, there is no agent uh, to reverse the anticoagulation, uh, such as we have protamine for heparin. That doesn't exist with these agents. The other question that you as a clinician need to uh, ask yourself is, uh, if this patient is HIT antibody, they are at very high risk for developing thrombosis. Um, so therefore, start looking for it in the veins, duplexes of the upper and lower extremities. And even if they are negative for DVT, there is substantial discussion about those patients being at high risk enough for developing a DVT that perhaps they need to be considered for treatment uh, with uh, these agents such as liparudin or agatraban. And if so, how long should we do it for a few days or a few weeks in, in a post-surgical patient, uh, some authors are considering up to six weeks. I hope you find that a helpful review on something that we talk about in general terms a lot, but in depth uh, very rarely. Um, 
My name is Jeff Guy. The podcast is Surgery IC Rounds. The website is um, my website is www.burndoc.com. Uh, the website um, for these podcasts are loaded on. I'm, I'm, you should probably found it or you wouldn't have the podcast is icrounds.com. Um, those of you who are sending us email, um, giving us feedback on the podcast, it's, um, it's very helpful and I do appreciate it a lot. Hope you find this useful. My name is Jeff Guy. Have a good day.